Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. forever now you know this one girl with hair like this yes that's ramona flowers she's out of your league you know her tell me now she just moved here got a job at amazon i have to order something really cool scott are you waiting for the package you just ordered maybe scott pilgrim hi i was thinking about asking you out but then i realized how stupid that would be that's okay you should just sign for this all right so do you want to go out sometime i say yes we sign for your damn package So, yeah, 8 o'clock? Come to this Battle of the Bands thing. You have a band. Yeah, we're terrible. One, two, three, one! Mr. Pilgrim! I'm Ramona's first evil ex-boyfriend. What? Welcome to Rewatchability. It is the podcast where we rewatch old movies and see how they hold up in a modern eye. I'm Robert Larone. With me, as always, is... J.M. McNabb. And today we have a very special guest returning. His name is... Hi, I'm Graham Isidore. And you are a uh, writer and friend of the podcast. You've been on a couple times now. Yeah, it's been... uh, I think this is number three. This might be number four, but it's at least number three. I think it's number three. And you write for Vice and a bunch of other places, right? Yeah, um, I'm a contributing editor at Vice. Uh, I'm a senior writer at CBC Arts, contributing writer at GQ, all sorts of different places. And we have a very special movie. And I think usually we say that and we don't mean it, but this is actually (laughs) a special movie to a lot of people and a lot of people that we know because uh, it was filmed right here in Toronto. It may even feature some people that we know. But before we get into that, first of all, we want to thank our Patreons. Those are the people who give us a little bit of money, some coins, and that helps us keep the podcast going, gives us a one-up every week. And in return, we give you a few perks, the podcast early. Sometimes there's some bonus levels, bonus content, like a few weeks ago, we had the Indiana Jones commentary watch-along. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, and so if you want to become a Patreon, if you want to contribute to Rewatchability monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash rewatchability and uh, do that there. So the movie that we're talking about is Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is a big movie, and this is the 10th anniversary of that film. And it's a big movie in particular for Toronto because it was not only filmed here, like a lot of movies, but it's actually set 
in Toronto and really, you know, uses the lifeblood of the city in, in everything. I mean, it's a film which the city becomes a character, to use that old cliche. One thing, though, is like the city has changed a bunch in the last 10 years. And Graham, you wrote an article for Vice a while ago about how much Toronto has changed recently. And it used a picture of Scott Pilgrim for the cover photo. Yeah, it did. Uh, that was the idea of my social editor, Jill, who's very smart and wanted to kind of honor Honest Ed's uh, RIP. That was yeah. a, a giant department store, I guess, for lack of a better term, that, that used to yeah, be Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah, It, it was around... a thrifty miscellaneous store. <laughs> yeah, it had been kind of like if uh, all the things that you would sort of look for out of like a Dollarama or a dollar store nowadays were kind of combined with like a, a Sears or a Target kind of store and then designed Yeah, but by... just like outsized and gaudy. Yeah, and designed by a person kind of in the 1970s, I believe, who was also like a theater mogul in the city and like owned a bunch of real estate. So it was sort of this like mad jack of all trades uh had put together like this mismatch of a department store so yeah the uh, the picture on it is of honest eds uh, in the background and they're sitting in a an iconic pizza pizza in toronto which is a, a shitty canadian pizza brand and yeah uh they're just kind of uh in front of that honest eds is actually featured really heavily in the comic books too there's some scenes that kind of happened in there but uh didn't oh man i yeah i wrote it like a similar article just about Scott Pilgrim and locations changing because as we'll get into, like a lot of it was shot in my neighborhood and it was like the most innocuous thing. I thought like I basically went for a walk and took some pictures and we're like, I was like, Hey, the Goodwill is uh, now a a gym. That's weird. And then all the comments were like, you fucking hipster. Like what the fuck? Whoa. It was, it, it it prompted such like vitriol. I was so surprised. Yeah. I mean, to use like old cliches uh, again, like, I uh, titled the thing Toronto, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. Uh, of course, a reference to the LCD sound system song, uh, New York, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. And then kind of this was my uh, take on the whole like Joan Didion, like leaving New York essay that's become so overplayed in recent years. But it's strange as you kind of get older. There's this author I really love called Natasha Stagg who said that like we all have our bars to mourn, which I really loved right. as a thing of like how the cities have changed and how that's all kind of gone down. But yeah, it's like it's interesting with Scott Pilgrim and looking back to kind of bring it back to the film. It's like this is very much a love letter to a Toronto that was and it was interesting revisiting that time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, just in terms of the city, like it's gone through like big transformational changes since then. It really does seem to like capture like the last gasp of of something before Toronto has started changing. And now, I mean, it's gotten even worse with the pandemic, like so much of the stuff that we know and love, it seems to be disappearing. And it's probably not going to come back, not in the same form that it used to be. So I mean, I sort of went into this movie almost expecting like a eulogy to Toronto, I guess, Mm. maybe just being cooped up for the last four months has gotten me a little bit cynical. But uh, <laughs> but when was the first time, uh, Jam, that you saw this movie, Scott Pilgrim versus The World? I saw it in the theater. I think I saw it the week after it opened. Like, I was away, I think, the opening weekend. Because I was pretty excited about it because I was uh, a fan of the comics. I'd read all the comics. Oh, yeah? And uh, was was pre- pretty, uh, pretty excited to see the movie. And, I, you know, I like Edgar Wright. And even like I'd heard like the opening weekend was financially disappointing for the studio. Mm-hmm. I think they'd put a lot of money into advertising it. And even though it's a, a pretty quirky movie, they were expecting it to, to do something. And I, I'd read that it, it 
hadn't done that. But even knowing that going into the movie, I was uh, expecting, you know, in Toronto where <laughs> where it's, you know, which is so pivotal to the movie that there would be like, you know, at least a, a sort of Scott Pilgrim faction turning out uh, to the theater. But even just a week into the release, I remember, you know, it was probably less than half full on a, on a Saturday night. So that was kind of weird. But uh, yeah, I always like, I, I really liked it, but oddly, it's not a movie I've returned to a lot over the years. Like, I, mm. I certainly didn't have a problem with it in the time, and I have a lot of, uh, just, uh, nostalgic, uh, associations with it, which I'm sure we all do, which we'll get into. Like, uh, they were shooting the movie the summer I got married. So I remember like people, friends literally were late to my wedding because they were shooting <laughs> Scott Pilgrim. So it's, it's always been kind of like tied up in like the nostalgia and like the, like you said, the kind of portrait of a, a Toronto that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. So yeah, I was, uh, I was kind of coming into this fresh. I don't remember when the last time I actually watched it in full was. Graham and we didn't know this uh, when we asked you to be on the podcast, but you uh, revealed it on Twitter. You were actually in this movie. You were a, a background actor. Yeah, I was a background extra for two weeks on it. I didn't make I- IMDb or anything. So I think even if you guys were like <laughs> two weeks, that's pretty significant, though. Up. Two weeks, and I was getting paid uh, $18 an hour, which felt like an absolute fortune at the time. It was definitely the most I had been paid. Uh, for any job I had done at that period. Um, and yeah, so uh, I was a part of like the scene with the DJ twins that was happening. Uh, I was in the oh, pit for that. That was the scene that my friends were late to my wedding because they were shooting. <laughs> that took forever. Yeah. It, was, it was like, <laughs> and we were just like going on. It was the first time I had ever been on set for anything uh, aside from like uh, an MTV commercial for MTV2 that I did, uh, where I looked really frustrated at a grandma eating an ice cream. You're so hip. <laughs> I, I know. I was just like, listen, uh, there was a whole nother life that could have happened via 2009 me. Uh, and somehow I ended up here. Uh, I'm sure that person would be very disappointed at like both my hairline and uh, <laughs> my, my job that happened. But uh, the bigger thing for that, I got asked to do a line in the film. There's a part where um, Scott is coming into the Chaos Theater, Gideon's Chaos Theater, towards the end of the film. Uh, and there's two groups of a gentleman who uh, ask for a password. And uh, I was going to be the floppy-haired one. And there's a, there's a gentleman who looks like... Uh, a lot, a lot like I looked like at that time period to the point where it's like we, we were wearing the same choker and shit. So it was, uh, yeah, it was very, very sad. But I, I so what up. happened? Did you did you biff the audition or what? No, I fucking nailed the audition. But I had <laughs> to uh, uh, I can I can seem apathetic and, and ask for a password very easily. I think that's still in my repertoire of acting. But no, I uh, in a very Toronto 2009 move, I was moving to Montreal for the summer and uh it it conflicted with the date that I had to be at a French language program. Um, wow, that was happening. Uh, so shout out to the Explore program. <laughs> uh, it still exists. Uh, if any of you are Canadian students, you can spend uh, two months in Montreal learning French for free, and they'll pay for your food and accommodation and classes. Can you speak French? <laughs> Not a lick of it. <laughs> <laughs> you gave up your movie star dreams. <laughs> I know, to go live in Montreal for two months. But yeah, I had sent in, uh, everybody else was supposed to send in headshots when you were doing your extra stuff. I sent in uh, my MySpace profile photo. 
which was a a mirror selfie uh, where I'm both like sucking in my gut and flexing at the same time in a very kind of contorted pose. And uh, my bangs look perfect and my my jawline is immaculate. So I was very sad not to be in that movie, especially rewatching it on Friday. Wow. Were you critical of the other guy's performance? Like, like, <laughs> I was, yeah, I was like, he wasn't I, committed. I was just like, you know what? He seemed like he cared a little bit too much. He needed to really like bring up his apathy, like at least a point or two. But yeah, it was funny. I was sitting with my girlfriend and we just sat and she was like, can you do, can you do the line for me? And I was just like, password <laughs> she's like you would have nailed that you would have done it really well we should look up who that guy is and like what his trajectory was after this to see what your alternate life could have been <laughs> yeah it'd be so much better like maybe that guy died of a heroin overdose a few years later and you know maybe oh you averted oh, something man. i mean there's so many famous people in that film and i was just like i could have been among you know the brie larsons and and is it is chris evans or is it chris, chris Evan. Who is evans, evans chris evans yeah yeah i i i too have trouble with the chris's but i'm pretty sure this one is evans yeah he's very good i i'm not trying to i'm not trying to be too cool to to remember i i like chris evans a lot i just um i have trouble with the handsome chris men who have been in superhero movies I think I have a handle on him and Hemsworth, and then it gets foggy because there's there's Pine, there's uh, Pratt, and those are both yeah. P, P names, so it gets a little confusing. Yeah, but he's very he's very likable in that, like even playing like the douchebag pseudo Jason Lee character in the leather jacket. I, I find him very likable in it. Oh, the, he's the great! Winnebago, yeah, the Winnebago line makes me laugh still. Yeah. It's a good performance. But so you were in the movie, you you spent two weeks there, you almost were a credited cast member. Mm-hmm. What did you see the movie? I mean, or yeah. did you not look at it? Yeah, it came out about a year later, the 2010 release date. Uh, so it was 2009. I went back and looked at some old journals and stuff uh, to kind of see if I had written anything about this time period as prep for this podcast. Nice. But yeah, it's... um. It was. I was really excited about it, and I think it was like it felt. It was very interesting because I feel like, in many ways, that like the film being like a little love letter to Toronto and kind of how it came together. I feel like part of that was the fact that they really captured a lot of those extras and were like just you know people hanging out in the music scene at that time period. Like it was a lot of people that I knew who had bands that lasted for two weeks, or you know, were like waiters at DIY spaces, or had just like just around skateboarding so it was kind of interesting because i think it feels like that was just on the tail end of like the success that like broken social scene it had and of course like metric Mm -hmm. has a song that's in the movie and like there's actually a broken social scene song that's used really briefly in there too it's so much of that time period just feels really really well captured by the movie but then also the fact that so many people one of the reasons that is is because so many people from like the music scene were just around like in that movie yeah I also saw this movie in the theater. You know, I'd seen Hot Fuzz at that point. I think I'd probably seen Shaun of the Dead as well. And so I was, you know, I was pretty ready for this to be like a fun movie. And I remember also liking it. I probably fall short of loving it, though. I do love all the Toronto stuff. And just in terms of like what it meant for Toronto and for the city of Toronto and for Canadian filmmaking, sort of, I was really interested in all of that because like, 
the whole thing about Toronto is that it's a city where it is constantly cast as New York or Philadelphia or Chicago. You know, it's adventures and babysitting. It's the Incredible Hulk. It never gets to be Toronto. And I really loved, you know, movies I felt represented me. And most of them were by like small indie Canadian filmmakers. And this was a movie that finally sort of elevated it. I mean, it seemed like elevating to like the Hollywood space and sort of, you know, brought the attention of the world on to people kind of like me. So I was really excited for the movie. I hadn't read the comics, so I didn't have that sort of connection to it. But it did sort of capture all the things that I really loved about Toronto, even before I moved here for university, like things like Lee's Palace, the Lee's Palace mural. Those were iconic from seeing them on Much Music when they would have the uh, the listings of the bands that I wanted to see, but couldn't see because I lived eight hours away. So, <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, super excited for this movie or like super stoked, I think, to see it. I think, I think, you know... Maybe uh, I projected too much into it, like, because it is sort of like referencing, you know, a place that I lived. It did feel like very much like, you know, my life in a way. Like, I know people who lived in small basement apartments in cramped situations, two to a bed. You know, I went to the Pizza Pizza, bought things at Honest Ed's. I don't know if it quite, like, lived up to it in that way. It did still feel like an imitation or maybe like, you know, that's part of it being an homage, but... Like I said, I was a little bit worried that it would be a bit of a eulogy to Toronto um, because so much of it has changed. And um, I mean, we'll talk about how I sort of feel about it as we go through, which I guess we should do. Yeah. So I, I will say part of this rewatch, one thing that I really wanted to get to the bottom of, and I think that I'm not even totally decided and maybe this conversation will help, is like how much of it is that I genuinely like this movie and how much of it is that it uh, represents the city I live in in a way that no other movie does. Mm-hmm. And and also like things that are very specific to me. Like I don't want to give out too much information, but like it, this takes place in my neighborhood. Like the comics even more so. Like, and they, you know, they use the... The, the artwork for the comics, they actually, you know, drew real locations in the neighborhood. And then the movie wanted to be as accurate as possible. So they went and filmed. So they filmed, you know, like literally the, one of the main locations is a stone's throw away from my house. So it feels so like embedded in, in my personal experience and also as in a lot of bands at the time. So I, I, I'm going to try to separate that from like my analysis of is this a good movie? And I don't even know if that can be done. <laughs> But yeah, uh, but yeah, that, I, I just want to say that from the outset. Yeah, I, I think I'll echo some of those sentiments, like um, both Casaloma and the park uh, that they kind of return to a bunch of times are about like it's less than a ten minute walk from from where I live now, and I've always kind of lived in the annex area of Toronto. That's that's like my home, so it was like a documentation that feels. Um, very, very close to home. So there's all sorts of uh, random biases that are kind of coming into this right now. Oh, um, we'll have to talk off I, mic about where you live because now I'm curious because you might be close to me. I, uh, I, I also, I went that. to, uh, I because I, I wrote that article about some of the locations. I just walked around and, and took some pictures and I went to where Scott's apartment is and I felt like so conspicuous doing it and like a tourist, but it, it's literally two doors down from uh, where my son had music lessons, which was in someone's house. So I, I've spent lots of time outside that apartment, but I, I felt like, like an awkward fan just walking by to take the snapshot the other day. Yeah, wow. it's like Ossington and DuPont area, right? Yeah, yeah. Somewhere around there for, yeah.
Yeah. Uh, okay, well, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It sort of starts with a chiptune version of the universal theme. And that sort of like tells us where we are. This is a, a universe where there's a lot of video gamey things happening. <laughs> you know, video gamey sounds. There is the Zelda dreamscape music that sort of opens it up. And there's a voice that tells us that this takes place long ago in the mysterious land of Toronto, Canada, which we just talked about. And then it says that Scott Pilgrim was dating a high schooler. And this is where I paused the movie because (laughs) I was uh, flabbergasted, I think. First of all, I had all these like fuzzy memories. I was in this good place. I was like, I want to see this movie about my home. And then the second line is like problematic as shit. James Franco is texting a high schooler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. So, I mean, how how do we talk about that? Well, the character is how, how old is the character? 22? Yeah, 22 22. to 17 in the movie. I mean... Yeah. It's it's like... It's, you know, it's a weird, awkward place. And it's sort of in the film. All of his friends are, you know, instantly sort of against this idea of him dating a seven-year-old. But it's hard to tell whether... 17. 17. Sorry. What did I say? You said seven-year-old. So, sorry. I I, I really didn't want to interrupt, but it would be... My take on this movie would be very, very different if uh, 22 to 17 is not the greatest, but 22 to to 7 is is not a movie I would talk talk about. I mean, to be be fair, like, Manhattan is considered by many to be a classic film, and that begins the same way, but with, like, a guy who's, like, 45... (laughs) Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, Woody Allen's entire filmography aside. But uh, his friends, like, they sort of, like, they're against it, but they're sort of more against it not because it's problematic or because Scott Pilgrim might be predatory. It sort of seems like he's just sort of, like, lame. Right. I think one of the central things about this movie and how much has kind of changed for me over the past decade is, like, okay... Uh, your question is like, is Scott Pilgrim a good guy? Is he a hero? Is he portrayed in that way? Um, kind of throughout the film. And that becomes an interesting thing. I think it's, it was very fascinating to me that like one of the last rewatchabilities that I did was with High Fidelity. And I think it's a similar mm-hmm. kind of situation where I was like, at the time when I first saw it, I was kind of, Scott seemed relatable in the same way that uh, the protagonist of High Fidelity had seemed kind of relatable. And now I'm kind of looking at either of those guys. I'm like, oh, I'm not sure you're supposed to like this dude. And that's mm-hmm. an interesting question throughout. And so I was trying to figure out in terms of like Edgar Wright's perception on it. Like there is some, I think some commentary towards the end and there are his friends kind of bagging on him the entire time, but are like, is Scott likable? Are you supposed to relate to him? Like he's definitely the protagonist of the film, but like that becomes a, a bigger question to me. Like, is it a documentation of like a schlub in his like early twenties who doesn't know what he's doing with his life and should get his ass together? Or is it like one of these um, things where it's just like, hooray for the, uh, the humorous, you know, man child. Mm-hmm. 
for sure. But so he is dating this high schooler. Her name is Knives Chow. His friends, they're not totally hip with the idea, but they're not like actively telling him to break up with her. Um, except Wallace, his roommate, does tell him to break up with her. Kieran Culkin is the moral voice. But he is, you know, he's a typical Toronto slacker guy. He's between jobs, he says. He plays in a band. He, he lives in a basement apartment that he shares with his roommate Wallace. It's one room. They share the same bed and they make gay jokes about it um but wallace seems okay with it so and it's just like the typical toronto slacker life until he sort of sees this woman in a dream it's this this purple-haired woman on on rollerblades and she sort of just like blades through his dream and then he spots her at the library so it seems like this is, you know, the universe is trying to to tell him something. And later on, he goes to a party and he finds out that she's going to be at the party and he finds out that her name is Ramona Flowers and he is instantly in love with her. He speaks to her at the party, but he totally, he bombs it. He uses the same line that he gives his uh, 17-year-old girlfriend, the Pac-Man line. Hey, what's up? Nothing. Hey, you know Pac-Man? I know of him. Well, Pac-Man was originally called Puck-Man. They changed it because... Uh, not because Pac-Man looks like a hockey puck. Paku-Paku means flap your mouth. And that they were worried people would change, scratch out the P, turn it into an F, like... <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Uh, am I dreaming? I'll leave you alone forever now. Thanks. But he doesn't tell it very well the second time, and so uh, Ramona's not interested in him. So it seems like, you know, his his crush is for nothing, except that he finds out that she works for Amazon.ca. That was very uh, particular in this movie. I enjoyed that. That is the Canadian Amazon. And so he makes an order on Amazon.ca and uh, sort of waits for her to sort of show up at his door which is funny because like it, it's very telling that this movie was made 10 years ago because <laughs> her working for amazon was like a cool job <laughs> yeah yeah as opposed to like job. further evidence of like the degradation of <laughs> corporate america <laughs> <laughs> so i mean she does sort of show up at his door just sort of magically he he dreams about it and he sort of coerces her into going on a date or hanging out he says he refuses to sign the package and they do like a a nice sort of winter toronto date Wait, okay i'm know? gonna pause right there because that was another kind of creepy scene i thought which was the coercing the person into a date. Yeah, it was basically like, like imagine if she worked at like a coffee shop. Like that's basically like if he went into the coffee shop and like refused to leave until she agreed to go on a yeah. date with him. Like it's exactly like that. Yeah, it's I I don't know. It's just it, there there was a big chunk at the beginning of this movie where where I I was not on Scott's side and wondered why she was even kind of going along with this. But I guess it's. Michael Sarah's charming? I don't know. Is he charming? Um, I think the consensus is no. <laughs> it's it's just been like funny to kind of see just how things much have changed in terms of like what um 
dynamics between like men and women are at that time too. Like I think we just have a better mm-hmm. understanding now, you know, fingers crossed. But yeah, just like that kind of like the coercion into a date and then also like it was a question. I was like, why does he like her? Like she's very beautiful for sure. And like, I mean, um, Lord knows I've, I've uh, been infatuated with many people with strange color hair over my lifetime. But like <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it was just like, they don't know anything about each other. You know what I mean? So it's just like this kind of like really, it's all just very, seems very, very superficial um, to kind of jump into it. But I also kind of like, it's, I wonder if I'm forgiving of that um, because that seems like a long time ago now, but also cause it's like, I sort of feel um, that's also kind of how I acted in my early twenties. You know, <laughs> yeah. Of. So I, I think like I mean I think this will come out through our conversation about the movie, but like it's the yeah, it's like the high fidelity thing. It's like how much of this movie is about a guy who acts like a jerk, and then how much is the movie ultimately, you know, critiquing that versus like reveling in it for its humor, or like are they trying to make Scott Pilgrim seem like a cool, funny guy, or are they kind of? taking him to task a little bit or like, I mean, cause obviously Edgar Wright was not in his early twenties when he made this movie. So like, presumably, you know, there was a certain amount, nor, nor was the, uh, you know, the writer and illustrator of the comic, uh, Brian Lee O'Malley. Like th- there's a certain uh, amount of self-reflection going into all of this. For sure. So, but I feel like that comes, I feel it less in the movie than the comic, but uh, we'll talk about that maybe more at the end. Mm-hmm. So they are hanging out, sort of, you know, not officially, but his band, Sex bob they play the Battle of the Bands, and that's where he brings Ramona, but also Knives shows up, and so... He's in a sort of sticky situation because, uh, you know, it's the whole double date thing. You got to do the, I mean, you got to do like the Robin Williams, Mrs. Doubtfire or something. But he just sort of like, you know, runs <laughs> off and does the <laughs> does the performance. This sort of like becomes like the main conflict of, of the first act of the movie anyway, is that he, he won't break up with Knives because, as he says, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, we were talking about this movie being kind of a eulogy for the Toronto that doesn't exist. I, th- I think like the rocket wasn't even there when the comic was written. Like that was gone. I'm pretty sure. So I feel like that that those kind of wheels were already in motion. Am I wrong, Graham? Do you know? Yeah, the rocket closed in 2005. I had to look that up because I was trying to figure out the different venues that were used in the film. So yeah, the rocket was gone in 2005. It was a punk club that was around uh, Church and Wellesley in the in the queer neighborhood. But yeah, it had closed before I moved to Toronto, so I wasn't familiar with the rocket. Yeah, they recreated it for the film, and they they recreated a whole bunch of things. Like um, even though it's still there, they recreated um, the inside of Lee's palace yep. for the uh, for the fight scene. There's also uh, it was before the renovation, so the bar at Lee's is still in the middle of the pit. There's still a bar that's kind of down there, and that's right. interesting to see kind of now uh, the bars at the back for Lee's. But yeah, it was, uh, they had to do that to be able to get some of the stunt work that was going in. They didn't have high enough ceilings, at least, to be able to facilitate the uh, first boyfriend fight. I mean, yeah, this is where he gets confronted by Matthew Patel, who is 
Ramona's first boyfriend, and uh, he had sent an email, but Scott Pilgrim found it boring, so he didn't read the whole thing, and he sort of attacks during the performance, and Scott has to sort of fight back, and this you know sort of sets up for the rest of the movie. I mean, we don't know that there are going to be more, but there are, and uh, he sort of fights him in like a sort of Street Fighter sort of, you know, one-on-one arcade game style, but also there's like a little bit of Bollywood influence there as well. Yeah... Yeah, yeah I, I thought that was, you know, maybe one of the, like, uh, the few, like, really cringy scenes in the movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it's it's interesting in this whole thing. Like, I feel like I can kind of take a little bit more of a pass at, at the movie for being like, okay, well, is it documentation of sort of, like, how bad men can be with women in their early 20s and, like, the idea of kind of fumbling your way around and... Um, using other people to learn about yourself in terms of like that early male relationship stuff, which like uh, feels uh, at once like cringy to my own past, but also kind of deeply relatable um, to kind of how I was when I was kind of like 19 and 20 and just kind of starting out dating. Um, but yeah, the way that they treat race, like here with the Bollywood stuff, I was like, ah, eh, that's not great. And then. I mean, he treats knives terribly throughout the thing, but there's a mm-hmm. lot of like very, which is bad, but there's a lot of like very racialized comments towards like just the fact that she's Chinese um, throughout that also just like were feel, um, you know, very uh, sort of vice 2005, um, you know, South Park kind of like <laughs> uh, humor um, where sitting there was just, oh, it's she's Chinese. That's different. That's a joke, you know, and we can just. Like there's comments in like when they're in Sonic Boom together about like what she eats and you know. It's, yeah, well, I know a lot of that's straight out of the comic, and I know Brian Lee O'Malley wrote the comic. I think his parents are Chinese immigrants, so I, I mean, a lot of that may have been like you know things that were directed at him as opposed to the other way around. But like he mm-hmm. he did like uh, post something about the the cast and just like how white it was. He said you know he was pretty surprised by just how white the cast was even though the cast of the comic was basically white like he said you know he kind of like turned his author surrogate into a white character so he was like maybe i whitewashed my own story but i guess he was you know hoping that in in adapting it like they could have gone for something more diverse than it ended up being well mm-hmm. i mean that also feels very true to <laughs> the music scene that I was in, you know, around like <laughs> 2010, around that time, you know, it was just like there, it wasn't very, um, it wasn't very diverse, uh, at that point. Uh, and I think right. there was still kind of like, yeah, it was just, uh, there certainly were some, or, or just that, like the shows that I weren't at didn't make a point of like trying to be more inclusive towards women or towards POC people. So yeah, it's, it's funny. Like, that also kind of feels like, even though that like made me cringe really hard, I didn't know that, that Brian was Asian, but yeah, I was just like, that also kind of feels true to what that scene was, like people being kind of shitty towards like race yeah. issues and like not treating women very well. I was like, oh yeah, you really nailed Toronto, you know, circa 2010. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So th- 
There are more, uh, there are more evil exes. They fight the next one over at Casa Loma, which for those of you who aren't Torontonians is this big fucking castle <laughs> that we have just at the top of the hill in Toronto. It's fucking amazing. It's a great place for dates. Definitely been on a few there. Well, have you really? Uh, but they, Wait, hold on. We got to pause yeah. the podcast. You took a date to Casa oh Loma? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an, it's a beautiful place. It's, you know, it's, it's magical and wonderful. I have also taken a date to Casaloma. That view is one of my favorite spots in the city. And, um, if you sit at the top and you have a bottle of wine in your backpack, it's. Oh, uh, I thought you meant like you go on like the tour of the house and. Oh, uh, <laughs> no. Okay. No, I mean, I've done that too, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, that would be fun, you know. It wouldn't be that bad. You'd go up in the turret and, uh, get a bit smoochy. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, and this is where he fights the, uh, the, the next ex, which is, uh, you know, a, a skater turned movie star, Lucas Lee. We already talked about. He's one of the Chris's and, uh, they have like a big old fight. He eventually sort of tricks him into Tony Hawking down the Casa Loma <laughs> railing and, uh, which, you know, uh, he, you know, is fatal. It's the, the Baldwin steps, we should say. The, the Baldwin steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Which I once had to carry yeah. a Christmas tree up before I had a car. <laughs> I used to have to carry my bike up there when we recorded the podcast at your old place. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Oh, they get asked to open for the Clash of Demon Head at Lee's Palace. So this is a big sort of thing. And it's also... It's a big thing because Clash of Demon Head is the band that is fronted by Scott Pilgrim's own ex-girlfriend, who he has a whole bunch of baggage over, and he can't even say her name in the house, though her name seems to change. So, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of names you can't say, I guess. But this is a big deal, and uh, so he goes to do that. Uh, but he discovers that the bass player for the Clash of Demon Head is, in fact, another evil ex and they have to fight it out at Lee's palace, and they played by uh, one of know, the they have like a, played by one of the Supermen, right? He was that, he was that's Superman, right. Brandon Ruth. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, right. He is good. And then it's Brie Larson who's the ex, right? Yeah, and I you know I'm not a big Metric fan, but I really like that song that she sings in this movie. It's a great song. That's yes. that's another funny, if you'll indulge me in a story for a minute, another funny personal sure. connection to this movie is that character is based on my sister-in-law. Uh, what? Yeah, or what? in part. I, I guess uh, it's it's kind of a weird, funny coincidence that I, I saw Edgar talked about this on in like a Q&A or something. But so uh, my sister-in-law is English and she grew up with Edgar Wright uh, in like a small town in England somewhere. They were like childhood friends. She's in like some of his early movies and stuff. And then he came to Toronto. She, you know, she moved to Toronto. They didn't see each other for a long time. And he was in Toronto walking around with Brian Lee O'Malley, who wrote the comic. And they were talking and they were talking about the character of Envy. 
And uh, he was saying, you know, she's based on two people. She's based on uh, the singer from Metric and uh, the singer from this local band. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have heard of them. You, you, you don't know them. And he's like, okay. And like literally a few minutes later, uh, <laughs> my sister-in-law was riding by on her bike and thought, hey, that, lo- that looks like Edgar, like who she hadn't seen in you know years and didn't know he was in Toronto and he didn't know she was in Toronto. And she stopped the bike and they were like, oh, oh my God. And they were, you know... They uh, exchanged numbers and stuff and uh, and like couldn't believe they were seeing each other. And then she biked away and uh, he turned to the guy who wrote the comic. And he was like, yeah, she was the other inspiration for that <laughs> character because she had a band where she played like synthesizer and was the lead singer. <laughs> wow. So it's this kind of crazy coincidence that the guy who made this movie the, grew up band? with uh, one of the inspirations. What? What was the band? Uh, Pony to Look. Cool. Remember them? Yeah. <laughs> cool. So that's another just weird wow. thing, which, which I was reminded of the other day. That's, uh, yeah, that's neat. Yeah. Well, so they have this, uh, they, there's another ex-boyfriend battle and they win. And I'm, there's more of that too. I mean, eventually it starts to sort of take its toll on the relationship. And also like Scott is kind of an ass to Ramona. Like at one point they're at an after party and he's like, is there anybody at this party you haven't slept with? I mean, classic, you know, douchebag behavior. They also, they fight the uh, Katayanagi twins, who, uh, you know, have, like, the sort of dragon thing. And again, I was like, does it have to be a dragon? Is that just the most obvious thing, or... I don't know. You know, I thought that uh, scene was good, but the extra work was just so poor. It took me right out of the... (laughs) It really kind of, like, took away, you know, brings you out of the mise-en-scene or whatever. It's like, it's not... Um, it's just one guy who won't stop looking directly into the camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that the whole movie, they've sort of been chasing around this sort of um, producer guy who will sign their band to the label. And that's why they've been playing all the Battle of the Bands. And that's what they've sort of been working for. And then, of course, it turns out that this guy, G-Man, as they've been calling him, is in fact Gideon Gray's the uh, final ex of Ramona Flowers. And once they sort of like meet, Ramona says that, uh, you know, she just can't help herself uh, around him. And uh, she sort of goes back with him and leaves Scott crushed. And Gideon, I mean, he tries to be, you know, pretty smooth about it. He offers the band a record deal, a three album contract. But Scott, he's not taking any of that. He refuses and quits the band and goes off on his own. And, uh, you know, he's a big man. <laughs> I mean, I would, you know, if it was me, I would probably just, you know, get over it. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's hard to break through, you know. There's a lot of bands with, you know, silly names. That's, it's, it's, it's also that's, just that, like, the one of the things that also is a eulogy is, like, the concept of selling out is so ridiculous now. Like, right. <laughs> like, like, it was just the idea that you could make any money off of your art at all, like, at that time period, or be able to make, like, a stable living where you might be able to afford a semi-detached one day because those, you know, didn't cost two million dollars to be able to do your thing based off your your poems or your whatever else seems like <laughs> still seem like a possibility at that time so the idea that like someone wants to give you a record contract and you're like no i have integrity and now it's just like anything would anyone please please just give me money to be able to to make myself and uh, rob be, what's that patreon again <laughs> <laughs> patreon.com slash rewatchability okay, cool, thanks 
<laughs> this is like the final sort of battle, I guess. He goes to the Chaos Theater to uh, confront Gideon and to win back Ramona. And, you know, he's he's ready to kick some ass. He fights all the bad guys. And then it's like the final battle with Gideon. Um, and he, he's, he's about to be defeated, but Knives shows up and saves him only to turn her sword against Ramona. And then they start fighting, and then Scott's fighting Gideon, and it's like all these people with, like, jealousy issues. Just like, get over it, man. But Scott, I mean, he uh, he has to tell both Ramona and Knives that they were in the picture at the same time, that he had not broken up with Knives uh, while he started dating Ramona, and, you know... Therefore, he cheated on both of them. And at that moment, Jason Schwartzman Gideon sort of stabs him in the back and he dies. He fucking dies, man. (laughs) Wait, wait, please stop all this fighting. Nobody stole anybody. Knives, I dated you and then I dated Ramona, okay? Maybe I forgot to tell Knives right away. You cheated on me, Scott. You cheated on both of us? You cheated on me with knives? No, I... cheated on knives with you. Is there a difference? You weren't wronged. Right? Game over. But... You know, if you if you remember four scenes ago, you remember that he had uh, one up that he grabbed. And so he comes back and he gets a second chance to to do this like, you know, none of us have ever gotten. And uh, he uh, he goes in and he sort of he sort of like makes more mature decisions this time around. He tells them up front that uh, he was cheating on them and, you know, tries to sort of smooth it over. And then him and Knives team up against Gideon. And they, you know, they use their dance dance revolution moves to sort of kick his ass. And uh, eventually, you know, Scott Pilgrim defeats him, collects the coins. And, you know, it seems like he's sort of won. It seems like he's, you know, won his Ramona, except that uh, she's about to leave. She says, you know, it seems like maybe you two should be together. But then at the last minute, Knives is like, wait, I'm 17. <laughs> <laughs> she says, no, uh, you should, you know, you fought for her. You should go with her. And uh, so he does. He, he, he gets to be with the woman that he fell instantly in love with. And uh, presumably they live happily ever after. The end. The end. Now, I uh, he, here's where I kind of bump up against this movie a little bit in rewatching it. And again, I, I like this movie a lot. I'm not, you know, this is this is more like a, a sort of bigger, more thematic thing. It's like, so I, I, I was reading the, I went back and read some of the books because, like I said, I like the books, and the ending especially is a lot different. Because what happened in, in parts? Well, I, I mean, it's very similar. Like the sort of first chunk of the movie is a very literal, straight up, faithful adaption of like the first volume. 
And then the, it kind of crams together a lot of what happens in the subsequent books and, and has to cut out a lot, like, uh, like whole, you know, it, it, the books like really breathe in a way that the movie kind of can't because it's, it's, uh, putting so much into it. But I was reading, I went back and read the final book because I do remember that when they made the movie, that book hadn't come out yet. The book came right. out like maybe a month before the movie came out. So they weren't working wow. from it in quite the same way. But it's also, it's similar in the sense that like he goes to the theater, he goes to confront Gideon, but it's also, it, it's much more like surreal and psychedelic. There's also some reveals, some more insight in that book into like the idea of, uh, or like so, a, a bit more delving into the idea that this kind of video game crazy world is all like a product of Scott's psychosis. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. Cause there's an early scene where, uh, and also that like the, these fights, this whole video game mentality is also like literally like it's arrested development. And it's also like born out of like, yeah, male insecurity and, and jealousy and petty emotions. Cause there's one early scene where one of the kind of first action scenes is Scott remembering when his high school girlfriend, who's Kim, the drummer in this, he remembers her. She was like kidnapped by this evil guy who went to a different high school or high school and he had to rescue her. And it was like a big thing. And you're like, oh, okay, this is just a, a universe where that kind of happens, where, where these rules exist. And then in that last volume, he's talking to her and she's like, no, that was just the guy I dated after you. And you, you just attacked him. <laughs> so <laughs> I think like they start to reckon with a bit more that this idea of like, you know, fighting your girlfriend's exes, you know, is an exercise in like pettiness and jealousy and right. insecurity in a way that I don't know if the movie totally does. And I, I think right. it's also like the kind of catharsis that comes at the end of the comic is more Ramona's. It's more about her kind of understanding that the Gideon character was this like abusive, toxic guy that kind of poisoned her for subsequent relationships because she was never comfortable in a relationship because this one guy was so shitty and she couldn't quite shake, you know, his presence in the back of her mind. That, that seems mm. to be what it's more about. It's more about like her battling him in the end. Right. Whereas this seems to be more about like Scott learning to love himself, which I don't know was necessarily his problem in the movie. Yeah. He seems to love himself just fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I do think that there was, it didn't go as far as I would have liked it to with it, but like there is some taking accountability for your own actions and like that's he gets a different sword in like the second um mm -hmm. the second battle where he's going back to fight gideon because he's kind of like owned up to this and like that i would have loved to like it's funny within the context of this because i feel like in some of edgar wright's like other movies there is like a better acknowledgement of like that arrested development that has kind of plagued the characters like that happens in Shaun of the dead and that happens in hot fuzz in like different ways and the world's end the world's end is yeah world's is, end is yeah. all about that yeah and so it's funny to kind of see him be able to riff on some of the themes that he had been very successful with but they never just quite get to that same like level that you were talking about like in the book where i was like okay well if Scott has a better understanding of like 
a lot of the problems that have been happening are a result of like him acting poorly, then I can feel a little bit better about him being an asshole throughout like the movie. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like that there's a little bit of a step there that like, again, just like this, this movie feels so personal to me because it just like, it's in my neighborhood and I was in it and, you know, is indicative of, of that time period of Toronto in such a way. But there is something that like, I think that, Hopefully a lot of like that arrested developments thing from like the angry young men thing is something that you like grow out of and people can tell you off enough that you're going to (laughs) to, like change. But yeah, it was very interesting to see like and shitty to see that like, oh, his self-realization or his like betterment and improvement of self just came at the expense of him being terrible in relationships. And I was just like, I wrote, I was writing that down and try to get my thoughts together about this. And I was like, Oh no, that feels very relatable too. <laughs> um, where I was just like, oh, there's a lot of things in there that are like cringy, but cringy because they feel kind of true. And like, yeah, I just would have loved to be able to see that like kind of next step a little bit more in terms of like him being able to take kind of ownership. And I think that would have framed the whole thing differently. Otherwise, it just kind of seems like very teehee, you know, yeah. about kind of like I think, his terrible actions throughout the film. I think all that stuff felt so true for me that that's why like watching it now being you know, more than 10 years older than the Scott character. Like I wanted the movie to be harsher on him in the end because that's how I feel. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, we're going to be right back with more about Scott Pilgrim versus world right after this break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at mint mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back. It's rewatchability. We're talking about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. We're here with Graham Isidore, Scott Pilgrim, almost star. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Heavily featured in the background. (laughs) You know, I I was looking for you because I watched the movie after I found out that you were in it, uh, but I I couldn't spot you. Yeah, Um, I I also couldn't spot me. I tried really hard to spot me on multiple occasions. no, I'm uh, I'm unseen throughout it, but there's a, a fellow who looked quite a bit. Your like spirit it. was felt. It's true. Um, the vibe of being a shitty twenty something in Toronto. Um, next, Scott Pilgrim. This guy also treats his underage girlfriend terribly. Um, no, no, it's bad, terrible, awful. Joke. Okay, so I have some trivia questions for you guys. Uh, these are some really hard ones. Uh, some of them have a little bit of a Canadian flavor, so it's going to be extra tough for our American listeners. So. Uh, try to try to keep up. So, question number one: the director in the Casaloma scene is an actual Canadian filmmaker, one of whose films actually influenced Edgar Wright when he made uh, Shaun of the Dead. In fact, it influenced the bleak landscapes. Who is this filmmaker, and what is that film? Uh, is it Adam McGowan? No, I mean that's that would be the obvious answer. Uh, I believe um, it's Don McKellar. Adam McGoyan's buddy. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, the guy who plays like the Adam McGoyan character in the show Slings and Arrows. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Would the movie be Last Night then? 
Yeah, okay. that's correct. Right. Last night, it's this great Toronto movie, Toronto set movie. And I think it also influences this movie just in the way that it sort of like features Toronto as itself. But it was this great movie starring Sandra Oh and Don McKellar. And I actually went on the Canadian Scream podcast last winter and talked about it. So go check out that if you're interested in uh, uh, what a Canadian movie looks like. But yeah, I found that really interesting. And he's also said, you know, over and over again on Twitter that it's an underrated film. And he uh, screened it, I believe, as part of like an Edgar Wright Film Festival while he was here, maybe at the Royal or something like that. Um, Rob, before we jump to the next question, I just want to point out during that scene, there's a little Easter egg that I love where um, they punch uh, Scott through the backdrop of New York when they're filming that thing. Which was just like a chef's kiss moment where it was just like, oh, yeah. they're, filming a, they're filming a New York scene at Casa Loma. And I'm like, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's like a, a really interesting scene. There's a whole bunch of stuff written about that and the way that it sort of is a metatextual comment upon all the stuff that uh, is filmed in Toronto. Um, yeah, uh, I, I love that scene as well. And I, I, I do like that it acknowledges that, you know, Toronto is essentially like, you know, a stand in for all these other cities. It just, you know, feels good to finally get a little bit of your due and, uh, you know, to see the things that you were joking about, you know, for years be joked about on screen. I, I was at, actually at Casaloma last Christmas because I went with my son's school for a field trip because they had like, Christmas stuff up, but in, in the basement of Casaloma, they have framed movie posters for all the movies that were shot there. <laughs> Just the most eclectic oh, yeah. grouping of, <laughs> of movies. Yeah, some of them are really bad, but I feel like this movie raised its profile a little bit. I remember when it was when this movie was being filmed, Casaloma was sort of like not doing great. Like the organization that was running it was like didn't have any money and they weren't really utilizing it. But now it's, uh, I mean, I think they're using it for escape rooms and stuff like that. But they're always doing stuff there. Now. Yeah, we filmed um, a D and D segment uh, for Vice with John Darnielle, the Mountain Goats, where we used Casaloma oh, yes. as Casaloma oh. um, and played a game of Dungeons and Dragons with him there. But yeah, it, there's the escape room people there who are extremely sweet and very nice, and um, shout out to them because they gave us uh, that uh, set for free that day. And then there's also a really um, uh, delicious and opulent steakhouse that's in there too. And if anyone's ever there, the bottom uh, three steps, just as you're going up these steps, um, if you just go through the left, there's a low part of the fence where you can sneak into the uh, gardens for a very beautiful little date if you're uh, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> little Toronto Easter egg for y'all. Okay, go. so I have another trivia question for you guys. So the credit sequence at the beginning uses a variety of experimental animation techniques, uh, including one pioneered by which Scottish Canadian director of the National Film Board? Oh, uh, oh, God, what's his name? <sighs> yeah, we watched his movies in film school. Is, it, is Norman yeah. something, right? Yeah. Norman Norm- McLaren. Norman McLaren. Yeah. I was never going to get that, but I'm glad. Uh, that was a tough one. It was a tough one. You really have to know your experimental Canadian <laughs> film. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, also, like, a great thing to watch if you are ever on Mushrooms, because it's just like all these, like, you know, lights and things coming at you and music. It's really Wait, great. So they used footage from his films in the opening sequence? 
No, they sort of like did it in the style oh, okay. of that, like when all like the stars are sort of coming up, and that was one of like the reference points that the uh, animator sort of worked from. They also worked from, I think, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill uses some of that stuff, and there are some other movies that do it as well. But I was uh, I was surprised when I noticed the Norman McLaren thing, or I thought that was like a very keen sort of detail. Mm. I my third question was uh, which Toronto band singer is Scott's ex bands based off? But not only did I only know <laughs> apparently half the answer to that, but uh, we've already discussed it. But I have I have a bonus level replacement question. This movie is full of video game references and also sort of video game aesthetic. So I was wondering if you guys could name between the two of you, because this is going to be hard, ten video game references in Scott Pilgrim. Oh wow! Oh um. Sure. Mortal Kombat, Zelda, Mario. Um, okay. Three very obvious ones there. Yeah, are we kind of like others? the band names? Like Clash of Demon Head and Sex bob is Mario. That's one of them. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want me to tell you a few more? Sure. Okay, so the fight scene versus Roxy, who we forgot to mention, but that's uh, played by Mae Whitman, mm. who uh, also played maybe in Arrested Development. No, no, she played um, that... She played Anne. Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> she played Anne in Arrested Development. Her? They were sort of taken uh, shot for shot from the intro to Ninja Gaiden. Oh, wow. For the Nintendo. Okay. There's also the Final Fantasy II baseline that Michael Sarah plays. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The Chaos Theater is a reference to the video game Earthbound, where there is a uh, a band that sort of you know kept uh, oh. hostage there, uh, very similar to this. Um, and the pyramid at uh, at the Chaos Theater is a reference to Super Mario Three and the pyramid levels with the angry sun. You guys remember that? Yes. Yeah. I, mean, I remember there being pyramids, <laughs> but. Uh... There were pyramids. Yeah. There were pyramids. I, I I mean, this game is sort of... I mean, this movie is sort of steeped in the video game, you know, stuff. But I almost felt like th- one of the things that sort of separated it from, like, our generation... Um, and maybe it's more your generation, because I think you're a couple years younger, Graham. But, like, I think that there were, it, putting video games as part of your persona was, like, not a thing that, like, you know, people, I think, our age did. But then, like, shortly after, like, you know, it became, like, a huge part of, like, you know how people express themselves in like yeah, their clothing. I don't, I don't think like the the quote unquote nerd culture kind of that has become so ubiquitous with like mainstream culture nowadays hadn't been wasn't as prevalent at that time. So yeah. it's just like something that like you know, I feel like Final Fantasy is something that most people could kind of reference if they're at some point or if they had at least heard of that you know but nowadays mm-hmm. uh nowadays i feel like that's true but at the time that still kind of felt i think you just had to work a little bit harder for your media and like um everything just wasn't like on like immediately available so it's interesting to kind of see so many homages to that too which then just kind of became so much part of the culture yeah yeah um, I mean, some stuff about the sort of process of developing this movie. Um, as we talked about, it was filmed before the comic series end ended. And in fact, 
they started developing the movie after the first volume was finished. So his publishers at Oni Press got the idea for making a movie uh, of it and uh, started talking about it and sending it around. And Edgar Wright received the graphic novel while he was on the press tour for Shaun of the Dead. And, uh, you know, he sort of fell in love with it and started working on it with another guy, Michael Bacall, who is, I don't think, related to Lauren Bacall, but, uh, you know, and, uh, oh, but he was a child actor. Um, I can't remember what he was in, but I think one of them was a Columbo special. Oh. <laughs> It was developed while it was sort of being written. So, like, the movie, as we talked about, closely sort of mirrors the first couple volumes. But, like, the stuff at the Chaos Theater, as as you said, Jam, it's more sort of abstract and psychedelic. Yeah. It's because Brian Lee O'Malley hadn't actually drawn that part when they started producing the movie. Originally, the movie had a different ending. So, originally, he did not go back to Ramona in the original movie ending, he stayed with uh, with knives, but yeah, uh, and then he goes to jail right after that. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but for some reason that didn't sit well with uh, <laughs> with Brian Lee O'Malley, and so they actually filmed the uh, the replacement ending only three months before it was uh, released. And I, they had to do it like pretty delicately because, you know, they thought um, maybe the actress who played Knives might feel like she had been like uh, slighted or something like that. But um, I think she, they said that she was supportive of it. Yeah, played by for some reason. Ellen Wong, right? She's a Canadian actress, I believe. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, and she was actually, when they filmed this, she was like apparently three years older than Michael right. Sarah. <laughs> I mean, I can never tell what sort of age Michael Sarah is. He's like some sort of ageless homunculus. He just, I don't know what he, his she's, face is weird. She's really great in this too. I, I find her. He is. Like, uh, no, I think she's even better than oh. Like he's pretty good in it as well, but like I find her character almost like the most fun out of all of them. She seems to like tap into the tone of this movie in a way that I'm not sure all the actors do as successfully. Like I think she's really yeah. great. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the actors seem to sort of get the world more than the others. Um, I mean, a lot of them are fun. I mean, I really like uh, Kieran Culkin. Oh, he's great. Really yeah. funny. It's funny, you know, I, I, uh, I watched the movie and then I went back and read some of the comics and reading the Wallace lines, it's hard to imagine... It was just hard to not hear in his voice or like, it was so strange. Like he just nailed everything about that character so perfectly. I mean, one thing yeah. we didn't talk about it, like it, it, it is this very 2009, 2010 thing where like the movie was seemed to kind of pat itself on the back for having a gay character, but he's almost entirely defined by his gayness. Like, like yeah. he's literally like just introduced as like, this is my cool gay friend. It's like, Oh, okay. That, but like all like that's the strange thing about like I feel like the criticisms of like this film from the context of a twenty twenty perspective are also kind of like that was quote unquote progressive like yeah I, totally in twenty ten you know like yeah. even among the like I think the patting themselves in the back of that but like even among the scene where I was just like yeah it's my gay friend I've got a gay friend look how great yeah I am, you know where <laughs> uh, I was just like oh it's my Asian girlfriend I've got an Asian girlfriend because I don't even see color like like that type of shit like it felt very uh, very indicative of that time period yeah, yeah totally. for sure 
One sort of interesting local connection was the guitar coach for this movie, the person who uh, helped all the actors with their you know, chops. Oh, it's the guy from Sloan, uh, was. right? Yeah, that's right. Chris Murphy from Sloan, you know, local fixture. You always see him bumming around sort of College Street area. I met him once. He was super nice. I met him once at uh, at the election. He he voted uh, at my stand when I was working the election, and he was kind of a he was kind of a dick about it. Like he was like, "So, uh, what? You got to take my information here, or what? W- where does this go?" Okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, great band. I mean, like it's. Um, I think I think he's disappointing that Sloan didn't become a bigger international sensation as well too <laughs> that, he has bum, <laughs> that he has to bum around College Street getting recognized by a-holes like us <laughs> well he was, he was nice to me I was at like a children's birthday party standing in the corner feeling uncomfortable and he came up and was like hey man I'm Chris like, oh hey oh, that's that was nice. the end of it I'm- <laughs> then, he, then he said he had to go vote so I don't know what else he did that day <laughs> like, did you know I'm in Sloan um, so we alluded to this at the beginning, but uh, this movie was a bomb. It's a, a sex bomb, not a sex oh. bomb. No, it was not. It you know it it cost sixty million dollars to uh, to make, and that's not including I think um, the tax credits that they got uh, mm. from uh, good old Canada. <laughs> they got ten um, million alone just for uh, hiring Don McKellar. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's a Don McKellar tax grant. <laughs> <laughs> got to keep them. Got to keep them working. Um, but it only made uh, ten point five million dollars the opening weekend, which uh, is devastating. Wow! And then after that, it fell drastically. So I think that's what you were talking about when you saw it the week after, and it was empty. It did not do well. It just missed the mark entirely. It did go on to make one hundred and thirty-two million dollars worldwide, which is double the budget. But, um, yeah, I was surprised because, I mean, we're not the only person talking about this movie no. for its 10-year anniversary. Jam, you wrote a thing for Cracked. There's been, like, eight other articles that uh, came out before us because we're recording this a bit later. But I assumed that it was huge. Well, also, they're doing a theatrical re-release right now to mark the 10-year anniversary, which is crazy considering it was a huge bomb. Like, that's how beloved this movie has become, that they would not only fail miserably in theaters, but then commit to re-releasing it in theaters 10 years later, and then even in the midst of a global pandemic, be like, yeah, let's still release it in theaters. Like, it's that's how much it's grown in people's estimation, I feel like. I don't I guess maybe yeah. they just had the prints and they're, you know, <laughs> like maybe we can finally recoup from this. I do feel like the casting in this is like it has got to have something to do with that too. Yeah. Like um they did like the the um a cast did a, a read of it um a right. couple weeks back and just like for the oceans. Yeah. Um and it's just like those people are are very like there's a lot of legitimate like a-list talent in there you know like people who have like gone on to have big careers even in like the bit park stuff like anna kendrick like shows up and um oh yeah uh, she works at the second cup at spadina yeah yeah she's like or not not at spadina it's a few streets which bothered me because it was the wrong second cup because in the comics was the one at bathurst and st Clair, which uh which isn't there anymore. Oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> there are also like a lot of things in the comic, like Toronto locations that don't get, uh, don't make the movie, which is understandable, but like 
we talked about Honest Ed's before. Like you mentioned, Graham, there's a scene in Honest Ed's. There's like an, an incredible scene in Honest Ed's where they have to kind of race through the maze of the store. There's like a fight scene in oh my the God. reference library, which is this kind of tiered, oh my God. tiered building, almost like the Guggenheim with, with, you know, different levels that, that was great too. Like there, I, I feel as great as this movie is and as faithful as it is, I almost feel like the, it's the, the city had untapped potential in a way. For sure. Yeah, I almost feel like it's definitely like a 20-something version of the city where you're like, yeah, you know, I know Toronto. I hang out in the annex. I go to the pizza pizza, <laughs> Bathurst and Bloor. That's that, Toronto, right? Yeah, and then, you know, later, true. usually after you're like, you know, priced out of the rental market somewhere, you end up exploring other parts of the city, you know, uh, stuff that are north of St. Clair, for example, or out west, say, in Etobicoke. I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a big city. <laughs> Full um, of wonder. It's, uh, I mean, like, I, I, this, just watching it, I was like, oh, I would love to see, like, a six-episode miniseries, like, version of this, you know? I feel like even kind of oh, yeah. keeping some of the same aesthetics. And, like, and I think being able to really kind of dig into some of those themes of, like, what the cost of dudes having to work their shit out is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting to me, too. I think that, like, I wonder if, like, some of the, the failure was, like, of this film at release was like i think people were tired of michael Sarah too mm. right yeah he was sort of ubiquitous like yeah he did that movie where he had a mustache and uh <laughs> yeah he just the magnum like, pi legit- re- reboot yeah that was a- <laughs> yeah legitimately <laughs> though i feel like at that time i felt like he was kind of everywhere and also like i don't feel like this is his legacy as much now but people really only thought he could do one thing Mm-hmm. You know, uh, which like I don't, I don't really feel like that's true. But like it's, um, yeah, between him and Jesse Eisenberg, it was just like it was like I don't want to see any more people who look like that guy, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, on my screen, like during that. And I do think there was a little bit of a blowback kind of from that. I remember at the time, anyways, thinking that. But yeah, it's uh, it's just interesting to kind of see what kind of got left in, what got taken out for that. The other thing I sort of wonder is. I mean, we're three Torontonians speaking about this movie, which is beloved by Torontonians. Like, I don't actually know what people who don't live in this city, I don't know what people who are outside the culture actually think of this movie. And I think it is like, it's very much like an insider movie. And it, I think, relies on a lot of its love coming from people sort of recognizing, you know, things that are meaningful to them, like for Torontonians, the city, for other people, video game things, you know, or comic book references. Or I do feel like the music at that time period, too, like, even though that this, um, like this film is really centered around Toronto. I do feel like the indie scene at that point, Canada's indie scene was batting so far out of its um, league, like, you know, like mm-hmm. Broken Social Scene, Stars, Metric, uh, Arcade Fire. Like that was kind of at the tail end of like how much those um, those bands like being at the forefront of kind of like what uh, a lot of like popular alt music was. And so, like, I do think that there's, like, a little nostalgia for those things that pop in. But, again, like, those are all Toronto kind of centric or Canada-centric things. So I don't know how much that would play for other people. We should probably talk about the music in this movie. Because this movie is almost could be considered a, a, a musical because it's all original music and there's a lot of different bands giving, you know, you know, full performances in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't talk about the musicians sort of behind the band. Like Sex Bob's music is all done by Beck, 
from Scientology back. <laughs> no, he's, he, uh, he renounced Scientology. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. All right. Yeah, I like yeah. him again. Which, which uh, I kind of yeah. feel like the Scott Pilgrim soundtrack is my favorite Beck album of the last 20 years because it sounds like a oh. 90s Beck album. It's yeah. that's very yeah. funny. Uh, it was like those things have like uh, like 12 million plays on Spotify, too, like the Sex with Bomb um, uh, songs. Like they're they're really beloved. They're really good. I I really really like the soundtrack to this movie. Like the original songs written for it. The Sex Bomb songs are great. Uh, like I said, that uh, the Metric song that Brie Larson sings is great. And, and yeah, Beck also writes that song that Scott sings. Oh, the Ramona yeah, song. Like that's a good song. Didn't Nigel Godrick do the score? Yeah, I think so. And he was also, I think, maybe the music supervisor. So I think he probably got a lot of these people involved. Yeah. Didn't get, uh, you know, Johnny Greenwood or Tom York. Because that's one thing, like, again, comparing it to the comic, which I kind of can't help but do. But, like, that's something that really elevates the movie and makes the movie its own thing is is this right. these great uh, these great songs. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's interesting, like, thinking of this in the context of Beggar Wright's work, too, where, like, the Ant-Man movie that he didn't get to make, but that he had written on for so long and had been development, and then Baby Driver later. I feel like there's stuff here that this, like, as much as anything that he did really informed, like, as a precursor to, like, how to use music in a film that was, for sure, you know, all of kind of what he did for, for Baby Driver. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, we should wrap it up. JM, what did you think rewatching it? You know, I, yeah, I totally wasn't sure going in. Like I said, I had fond memories, but it also, it, it's funny because it's one of the more recent movies we've done on the podcast, but in the, in a way, it feels like one of the most, uh, kind of distinctly nostalgic, like that period mm-hmm. of time being around that age, the city that we live in being uh, on display. Like it, it feels so potently nostalgic watching it. And also being uh, a guy who played in bands in a lot of the same venues, uh, you know, seen in the, did you play at least? Never played at least. Oh. Actually, did I, I can't remember, but the Elise is also like a place where, I mean, it was, we considered booking one of our, album releases at least but it's so when it's not well attended it feels so empty like the way it's laid out right like i remember we had friends in from out of town once who were playing a show and we were playing another show and we decided to stop in on the way back and we went in and they were literally playing to no one in lee's Falls. and so we and i was so glad we stopped in and we i think we bought them drinks and brought them to the stage and just you know kind of sat in this empty club and uh it was kind of like the fight scene in this movie when it all clears <laughs> out uh but i i mean just that yeah that fe- i mean it, it is universal like anyone that you know when it's in a band in their early 20s you know regardless of what city can uh can can fam- you know see the similarities or feel very much at home in the story uh so mm-hmm. i i don't know like it, it, it's so nostalgic like almost more than any movie we've done on this show. I do wish that the movie took a more critical eye to Scott's. I think the comic mm-hmm. does from what, from what I reread. Uh, but also like, you know, this movie is trying to do a lot 
that, you know, it obviously can't do everything the comic's doing. And, and like I said, the comic, you know, th- this can be a jumping off point for going, getting into the comic and, you know, having, uh, maybe a longer, richer experience with that. And I also, you know, there are so many comic book movies that try to, uh, recreate the style of the book so faithfully that it almost comes at the expense of like the movie itself. Like uh, my first thought is something like Sin City, which uh, mm. is, is a movie that kind of bends over backwards using digital effects to make itself look like the pages of a comic to the point where like, you don't really feel invested in it as a story or uh, even as a movie but th- this yeah. is is so unique because it's like you know Edgar Wright really made an attempt to make it a faithful recreation of the city and actually like come to all these locations that were so faithfully drawn in the comics and then to faithfully uh you know, film them in those actual places, which just kind of makes it an amazing comic book adaptation in a way that I can't think of any other comic book adaptation. Uh, I can't think of anyone that's done that or has had the opportunity to do that because all of those places exist in real life and you can just go put your actors there. It's kind of amazing. Or, you Mm -hmm. know, recreate them like they did in some cases. Uh, So yeah, it's, it's great for that reason. You know, like I said, I've got some, nitpicks in terms of the ending like i don't think it quite lands emotionally in the way i think it it perhaps could have but uh it's it's a lot of fun and i I had a lot of fun watching it again nice yeah i would say i feel pretty similar i mean it is really hard to separate yourself from the nostalgia if you happen to be in toronto during that part of the time and i also like i do wish that it went a little bit deeper i think it really sort of loses it because I mean, you have Scott Pilgrim who's, you know, fighting all of these sort of video game type battles, but they're not like necessarily representative of like the moral conflicts. And they try to sort of like mix them in there. But, you know, the main sort of thrust is just that he's just got to beat the bad guys. And the sort of question of him sort of like facing his own bullshit is like an afterthought. So, I mean, I find that disappointing. I think that like there are like very valid criticisms like Brian Lee O'Malley's criticism that there aren't enough people of color in this movie. But I mean, it's really fun. It's absolutely unique. All the characters are really fun. I like pretty much everybody in the movie. So I mean, it's it's rewatchable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really unique and special film. I mean, I don't think it's you know, it didn't change the world or anything, but it definitely meant a lot to a lot of people here in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably just always sort of like think of it as, you know, with like a sort of uh, warmth that I don't think of other movies of that time just because, you know, it's so familiar to me and, uh, you know, it represents my world. Graham, what about you? I mean, this was big for you. You did the two weeks. You almost had the line. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I can't, I could barely even rewatch it. I was just so devastated by the idea that um, I'm not Brie Larson or something. <laughs> <laughs> we're all devastated that we're not Brie Larson. Know, it's so hard. But no, it's interesting in that way. I feel like it's, I really love Edgar Wright's work a lot. I think that the, um, you know, Shaun the Dead and Hot Fuzz are really, have been like important movies to me um, in terms of like starting to shape like my sensibility and sense of humor. And this one, I feel like there's a lot of experimentation for like stuff that he would do well later. Mm-hmm. I think some of the things that I wanted from the film just kind of think like were unfair f- 
like for that time period you know like i would love to be Mm -hmm. able to see a little bit more depth with those characters i would love to be able to see like a little bit more consequences for the actions with scott but it's fun throughout the pacing of it is really good there's a bunch of good jokes like the characters uh seem to be having like a really good time like all the actors seem to be having like a blast kind of performing within it it's like poppy and it's really stylistically interesting yeah and it's interesting to me in so many ways that like uh a movie that could have been even more simplistic like just based on kind of what was happening at that time period and the fact that like comic book movies were gang to be the the bigger thing but hadn't quite like reached that level yet like Mm-hmm. It, there could have been kind of like a a sort of like American Pie Euro trip cringy version of this that would have been terrible. And instead, I thought you got something that like didn't fully live up to um, my kind of like platonic ideal that I would love it to, but really captured a lot of things very, very well. So totally yeah. rewatchable. It's flawed, but you know, yeah. what isn't? Yeah. And like, I think when we talk about nostalgia all the way through this, it feels like adolescent in a way that's kind of like nice you know like i feel like his Mm -hmm. like his growing as a filmmaker and like seeing the city grow and those characters grow all feel very um cool i would love to like i was just riffing on like the idea of like checking in on those characters 10 years later like uh just to see where they're at and still trying to struggle through toronto like um they all all live in hamilton now because yeah toronto's horrible yeah yeah Yeah, they still are in the same basement apartment because they can never move out because they just have a lease there right yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is not an apartment in real life it's it's a shed uh, because yeah. when I walked what? there the other day, the the guy who lives there was taking his garbage out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did he? Did 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 you interview him like as part of the movie? No, or? no, I, I didn't. Do he that. was like, oh no, another Scott Pilgrim fan. Not again. <laughs> Third one today. Okay, well, that's rewatchability for this week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. Those are all places you can listen to the podcast. If you'd like to contribute monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash rewatchability. Uh, you can find us just to gab with us on Twitter or Facebook, or if you want to send us a request for a movie that we cover, you can do that at uh, rewatchability at gmail.com. Graham, where can they find some of your fine work on the internet i'm at uh at press gang on twitter uh with one s uh, p-r-e-s-g-a-n-g read graham's articles that he's always writing for vice um they're always uh great have you had one there was one recently wasn't there yeah um uh i'm working on a couple of bigger things uh i had spent three months pretending to be an influencer um, so, <laughs> right. Uh, what? That whole thing. It's a it's a whole can of worms. I, I end up getting about six grand worth of stuff. It's it's very good. No. Oh. <laughs> so that whole thing. Um, there's a guy who claims that he can uh, make your jaw better uh, as a man by chewing on a piece of plastic. And I've spent like the last couple months with him. So there's all sorts of type of stuff that's coming around. Um, but yeah, uh, the most recent vice stuff. The last big piece that I had done. Um, I accidentally turned. A person into a porn star. Yes. So that was the one. Always, always excellent work. Uh, and it's always, you know, it's always uh, a joy to f- see what you're going to be writing about next. Sometimes it's like fun and theatrical. Uh, sometimes it's uh, sort of sleazy. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
<laughs> I never heard it, I never heard it called sleazy before, but I like that. Um, <laughs> when Rob yeah, calls something no, uh, sleazy, it's a compliment. Well, thank you very much for having me on, guys. It's nice to uh, it's nice to be on a podcast that I actually listen to, and um, uh, it's always a blast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. And um, everybody out there, we'll see you uh, next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.